following is a message from Living Waters Church in Elk River, Minnesota. For more information, visit livingwatersmn.org. have decided, even with the turning of the month, that we're going to stay in our show us your glory theme. And uh, it was funny because my, my son goes, but it's a new month. <laughs> and so I realized, wow, it's really good we're doing this if we've decided that a new month needs a new theme. So, um, so I'm excited that we're going to just continue to press into that. I feel like there's probably no end to where we could go in looking at the glory of God. But I don't feel like we're done focusing on it right now in this season. And so I want to just continue with that. We've looked at some different you know, aspects of God's glory. Um, and I believe that what's happening as we continue to kind of focus on that is a hunger is being stirred in us. A hunger is being stirred, a faith is being stirred for his glory to be manifest in our lives. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that. Now, before I start today's word, I need to correct an error that I made last week. That I know. (laughs) I know. This is the uh, refuting and sound doctrine part. Um, But I I promise, actually, nobody brought this error to me except the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how many of you were here. How many of you were here to ride the roller coaster last week or rode it online? All right. I promise we will not need any drama mean today. But um, I gave an example of sometimes our pursuit of walking in the plans of God or saying yes to the plans of God Um, I gave the example of me wanting my son to have every experience that he wanted to have at this theme park. And so when he invited me to come and go on a roller coaster with him, which I didn't know was a roller coaster, a ride with him, I said yes, of course, because I wanted him to get everything that he wanted, to do everything that he wanted, and he was inviting, inviting me into it. And so I talked about how sometimes that is like our life with the Lord, that there needs to be a desire in us that says, I want you to do everything that you want to do, Jesus. And I'm so excited that you invited me into it. And so sometimes we get in line for the ride because we are just so focused on him. We're so focused on everything that he wants to do. And then we realize what the ride actually is. And it's hard to keep that focus. We're like, I don't know. But here's, here's where the error was. I talked about the fact that he has a plan and then he invites us into it like this roller coaster. And I said that I went on this roller coaster and I realized this is not the way I die. And I said to you, he's inviting you in, get on the ride, this is not the way you die. And I felt like the Holy Spirit brought that back to me right away the next, the next day and said, and so what if it is? And he called me on my very Western Christian experience that believes that I can say yes to God without risk, 
Do you know that people all over the world say yes to God and it absolutely will be the way they die? It was an error for me to say that. There is nothing biblical about that. So, and I get it, we're all, I'm not being hard on myself, I'm not, I just don't want us to miss the truth that there comes a point in our lives where it doesn't matter because we are so focused on him doing everything that he wants to do that even that doesn't matter, that I don't need that assurance. I don't need the assurance that this will not result in my death. But we've been very safe and very comfortable here for a long time. So safe and so comfortable that when somebody is mean to us on Facebook, we call it persecution. <laughs> I'm just being real. But the word makes it very clear. This is going to cost us our life one way or another. And there is something in me that goes, I want us to develop the same hunger for his glory that people across the world have who know that they know that saying yes to the plan of God is absolutely going to mean their death. There is no separation between us and those believers. We are one with them. For me to flippantly say, this is not the way we die. It hurts my heart even. And I promise I'm not being hard on myself and God's not being hard on me. But there's something in me that wants us to know that it, it, we have to come to a place where it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we're so focused on him doing everything he wants to do. Regardless of the price, because his glory is our goal. Not my safety, not my comfort. Relax, Renee, it was just a metaphor. Okay, we'll just talk metaphorically then. Metaphorically, you also will die. <laughs> Stepping into and saying yes to the plan of God brings a death to our desires, to the things that we thought we wanted. It brings a death to our preferences, to our comfort. So in real life or metaphorically, this could be the way you die. And there is something that he's developing in us that is grounded, that is rooted, part of the word that Margaret shared this morning, that is so founded on the truth and reality of who he is and, and heavenly-minded, that we're not shaken by the threat of the loss of comfort or death. It's kind of a long, broad spectrum. But we're on it. We're on that spectrum. There's something he's developing in us that will say yes. Wow, what a downer I am this morning. Right now, you're like, bring the kids back in. She's so much more fun with the kids. <laughs> Parents, I'll let you decide how you want to have that conversation with your kids that I told this is not the way they die. 
There's a time and a place and a maturity, but I think that's important for us too, that our kids recognize that, yeah, this might cost us something to follow Jesus. Do you know it probably is going to cost them more than it's costed us? All right. So, are we still committed, knowing it might be the way we die, to say, show us your glory? Okay, good. So we're going to stay on that. So we have acknowledged the glory of God in creation. We have, uh, Pastor Bob talked about the unique ways each person carries his glory just in the fact that he created them. We've talked about the glory of God being shown in the ways of God or the laws of God. When, when we had Sanctity of Life Sunday, we talked about just that his glory is demonstrated in the order that he puts around what operates best for his creation. Those are his laws and his ways and his glory is demonstrated in that when we lean into that and we yield to that when we yield to his plan for marriage, what we're going to be talking about next weekend at that conference, and we, we press into, I believe his glory is going to be um, emanating from the truth of what he established in marriage and how we step into the fullness of that and the power of that, the power of that unified relationship that he's created. We talked about the glory of God in our testimony we talked about how the glory of God shows up when we need the grace of God. It shows up in those places where we just can't, because he just can. <laughs> Today I want to talk a little bit about what we would call the manifest glory of God. I believe, obviously, all of those are manifest. Those are all sort of visible But I mean the manifest glory of God where it's just so obvious that he's in that space and he's working. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk a little bit about the, the conditions that are ripe for his glory being manifest in our lives. And we're going to look at the Old Testament a little, the New Testament, and then some historical accounts of just the obvious presence of God in times and seasons. And we're going to look at what, what's at work in that. How do we be a people who is uh, prepared to be the dwelling place of his glory? How do we be a people that, that are prepared for his way and his wonder and his truth to be operating through us? And to be, to be so evident. In um, When Heaven Invades Earth, there's a definition of glory that says it's the invasion of God's reality into the human sphere. And I think any of the other ways that we've talked about glory, in creation, through his law, through his ways, through the the ways he's created us, all of that, all of those things can technically, we can see the invasion 
of his reality. But I'm talking about the kind of glory where there's like a divine presence of God, the dwelling or the settling of his presence, the visible manifestation, the beauty, the brilliance, the power, the the praiseworthiness. We talked about the fact that whether I see it or not, he is glorious. He is always worthy of praise. But what does it look like in those moments when it's just so visible to us? In the Old Testament, most of the physical manifestations of God was in the forms of light or fire or a cloud or all of the above. And then it would talk about the glory of the Lord being in that place. We talked about the manifestation last week, the manifestation of God's glory to Moses and the Israelites and what that looked like in signs and wonders. And we, we dissected that first conversation that Moses had with God and how when he invites us into a plan, the process we might go through with him of making ourselves ready to carry the glory that he wants to release. The recognizing that it's not about us, it's about him, that he's going with us. Recognizing who he really is and, and coming into faith that he can do what he says he can do. And then making sure we stay focused on what he is saying and doing and not on others. If you missed last week, that was, there was, you know, we did more than play with a roller coaster. There was content there. So we've kind of already talked about that, kind of those manifestations of his glory in the Old Testament. And we, we've, we can pull some things out of that. But I feel like as I was looking at this, because I was going to kind of do this really clean, tidy thing where I've got one story from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one from historical. We're not doing it that way. Um, because I got so caught up in this story in John of Jesus' first public miracle. There is something in hermeneutics or the study of the Bible or the, the way that we interpret the Bible called the, the rule of first mention or the law of first mention. I'm charismatic, so I like the word rule more than law but it's the same. It just means that there is something special in the word when something happens for the first time or when it's mentioned for the first time. There's something special about that. One of the places we see this is the name Yahweh for God was its first mention, it was in Genesis, when he formed out of the dust and blew into man. That was the first mention of the name Yahweh. All before that, God, who was speaking things into existence, was Elohim, the God that's this phenomenal cosmic power. And then we hear this other aspect of his personality forming with his hands and blowing in. And then it says, Yahweh planted a garden. Elohim spoke and stars happen, and the moon, but Yahweh planted the garden for man. Isn't that cool? That, that first mention helps us see these different dynamics of God's character and how he wants to relate to man differently than he relates to all of creation. 
Okay, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It's just an example. But in here, we have this first mention of, of Jesus doing a sign and a wonder. It's his first public miracle. And so I thought, this is where I want to go. And, and specifically what led me to it, kind of a spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyway. What led me to it is that it tells the story and then it says, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's basically saying this is where his glory first manifested, where he first manifested the glory of God was this miracle at the wedding in Cana. So I felt like the Lord wanted to speak to us through this story because I was fixating on it a little bit. And I'm going to just start to read it. Um, chapter John chapter 2, verse 1. If you've got your Bible, you could read along, because then you can kind of... We'll be in and out of it. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, I still don't understand this statement, but Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This is equally intriguing to me. Then his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So I'm pretty sure she pulled an I'm the mom. Because there was, it, does, it seems like there's some parts missing from the conversation, or she just kind of gave him the look and said, yeah, okay, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So I'm not sure about all that, but uh, it's an interesting part of the conversation. So here's what I want to start out with. One of the first things I, I felt like I saw in this story was the, that the condition for the miracle, for the glory that was about to be manifested, was running out was lack, was a need. And there are times when we look at the present circumstances going on around us, and we're in a running out culture right now. We are in a we ran out culture. I mean, right down to supply chain and, and all of that. We're, we have run out of kindness. We have run out of customer service, have we not? We have run out of our own ideas, of our own wisdom. We've run out. And we begin to look at that and go, oh no, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The glory of God is going to come. Because time and time again in Scripture... And in history, it is in those times of lack, it is in those times of running out, that God comes and shows up. When I looked at some of the historical revivals all around the world, we began to see, we began to see this common, if it were a scientific exploration, we would see that a common condition is that there is a, a lack, there is a need, there is a darkness. 
And then we see the church come into a fullness that meets that place. In the 1700s, in the Moravian revival, or that manifestation of glory, it began with an intense lack of unity, with a total strife and discord. And that strife and discord caused people to feel their need for the Lord and to press into him. And he poured out such a powerful unity that a, church, or a, a community of 600 people sent 70 missionaries all over the world and saw the glory of God move all over the world from that place. But it began with div divisiveness and strife and fighting. In the 1800s, in the Second Great Awakening, it was extremely bleak in morality and spiritually. The church attendance was declining. The church had lost its influence. It was rare to see a Christian in colleges. Does that sound familiar? That was the stage that was set. That was the conditions for the Second Great Awakening where churches all over that area and then eventually the world began to devote one full day and a half hour every week to prayer. And from that, they saw revival happen in colleges, in several different, uh, in several different places around the world. I'm not going to go into, just because I have somewhere I want to go, I could read you all the revival stories, but I don't want to. I want to talk about our upcoming revival story. But I want us to, to recognize the lack that was, was the conditions for what God did there. In 1857, there was a prayer revival in New York. The banking system had collapsed. In New York alone, 30,000 people were out of work. This is in 1857. So consider... Consider population being different. 30,000 people in New York City. Did any of us know that there was financial crisis before the depression or the recession? Or No. <laughs> and a prayer movement started where people began to move or pray at noon at their lunch hour all over the city. And then all over New England, they began to pray, have prayer meetings at 8 a.m., noon, and 6 that people were attending, and God began to move in those cities. It was happening all over the East Coast. One of the newspapers in that time said, there is hardly a village or a town where a special divine power does not appear to be displayed. They estimate that over a million people were converted and that a million believers were revived. That came when there was severe financial crisis, high crime levels. In the Welsh revival in 1904, the churches were empty. The Christ Christianity had lost its influence. At one point, they had been holding prayer meetings for seven, or for seven years, praying for God to, to move. Evan Roberts got a hold, God got a hold of him at age 13 when he prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and control all of him. 
He continued in that at 26, God gave him a deep desire for souls, and he told him, you're going to see 100,000 souls. And out of a message that he preached, and it went all different places, and it sparked all kinds of things in that area, 100,000 people came to the Lord in five months. But that came from a place where the church had lost its influence. Bars were overtaking communities. Drunkenness and um, crime was rampant. In 1905 in India, in the, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Mukti Mission, a woman was ministering to 2,000 child wives. They had a practice there where young girls were taken as wives to older men, and they were widowed because they were married to much older men. And when they were widowed, they had nothing, and they were often still children. And so this woman ended up with 2,000 of these kind of orphaned, widowed young girls and had a, had a school for them. But she didn't have the money. Some were dying because of lack of care and basic medical needs. She began some prayer meetings in 1901, so this is now in 1905, and the girls began to be part of that. In 1905, the Lord began to move on these girls, 2,000 of them, and they began to have dreams and visions and get lost for hours in prayer. And she began to have supernatural food just be there. Cupboards that she knew was empty the last time she was in there have food again for the next meal. Miraculously, they saw healings. Then she trained them, and she began to lead and send these 2,000 young women out to preach all over India and started fires all over India and, and churches. But that came from this tremendous sense of lack and this moral degradation, de- badness. <laughs> and I just want us to, to recognize one of the conditions for the glory of God is lack. But we don't live in that lack culture We do not come into that fear of lack because we have a kingdom that has no lack. We aren't part of this kingdom. We're part of a kingdom that has an abundance. And so one of the things, the condition for us to see the glory of God move is to recognize we're not coming from lack. We're not coming from, oh, we don't have any influence anymore. We're coming from this place that God wants to come and move. We've run out of our own strength. We've run out of our own solutions. Perfect. That's the condition that the glory of God likes to come in. Okay, let's read on. So the next piece we see, we have no wine. There's a little thing between Jesus and his mom. And mom says, Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. This is another common piece of preparation for the glory of God in our lives, obedience. That we become so committed to his plan and his purpose that we will do anything he asks us to do, even if it means that's the way we're going to die. 
that there is an obedience. I just want to do what you want me to do. Sometimes we can see the lack. We can see those places that they're, you know, I can't believe what's going on here and what's going on there. And we begin to go and we enact ourselves to go do something there. But I, can we take a minute and go, okay, wait. I want to do whatever it is you ask me to do. Are you asking me to do this? Are, is, am I doing this in obedience to you or am I doing this because I'm just trying to fill the need or make the difference? Or He's going to make a difference, but it comes through our obedience. What are you asking me to do in this? I don't want to do any more or any less than what you're asking me to do. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how the verse in John 17, 4, when Jesus says, before, this is kind of his final prayers before he goes to the cross. And he says to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And how that just is becoming the prayer of my heart. I just want to do what you want me to do. I have so many great ideas. And I have so many limitations. And both of them could keep me from just doing what he wants me to do. But one of the conditions for his glory is an obedience to him. Okay, next part of the story. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. These clay pots, to me, are so symbolic. There's, I mean, there's lots of different things around this. The number six is actually the number for humanity, for man. I just feel like there's a symbolism to this about his, this first miracle, he's coming to fill the ordinary with the extraordinary. He's coming to fill man, the, the ordinary stone pots of man, for his glory to be able to come. I love that they're empty, and he's coming to, he says, okay, fill them. And the Lord's been calling us, can you just come empty? Can you stop trying to look like you have something? Just come empty. Yeah, but I'm just a pot. I've got some cracks. It's okay. It's not about that. That... One of the conditions, or one of the things we see, again, all through Scripture, think about it, the people that God used in Scripture. Ordinary. Imperfect. Not the ones you thought. The ones that we thought would be disqualified. In history, when I look at those that were leading these, these times of God's glory showing up and manifesting in a large way, these were not the theological presidents of any denomination or the, I don't even know if that's a position. You, you know what I'm saying? These are not people of position. These were not people who were qualified to lead a movement. They were not people who already had a following or already had a favor on them. Many of them had a lack of favor they were in a situation. The Azusa Street Revival was, 
William Seymour, he was not even allowed, because of the segregation at the time, he was not even allowed to sit in the classroom with the other students to study the word. And he sat out in the hall and listened from there. And he was the one that God released. The ones that haven't been honored or favored or feel like they, they wouldn't have the qualifications. He uses the ordinary to work the extraordinary through. And you're on deck, Debbie, uh, Judy. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be from God and not from us. Willing vessels. Ordinary vessels. Judy had a word during worship that I felt like would really fit good here. I have to give a definition before I release it. Two days ago, the Lord said so much of us keep their faith and their life in a treasure chest. And that is so valuable for us. We can access it. But then he said, can you open the coffer? I had to look it up. A coffer is something we treasure. And what we treasure, we don't let it out unless we desperately need it. And then we get it open and we pray and treasure. Oh God, we claim. But the Lord is saying, get the coffer open. Be the person that is no longer just a, a water vessel that's safe with the water inside, but to reveal his glory mm -hmm. and tell his story. I keep hearing that over and over. So, and then this morning, conceal and carry no more. Don't conceal the Lord inside for fear of what is going to happen when people judge or get confused. But you are to conceal and reveal. So I conceal and carry. So many carry Jesus, but conceal it. Now reveal it. Make it clear, do not fear. He is not just a, he is not just at hand. Be the one I am calling you to be. Let me out, let heaven shout. Share your story for your glory. And then I had to write something more. I am the God Almighty who is mighty to save. No to the grave. <laughs> Take me out of the coffer, a treasure chest, so you can offer it somebody else. Keep, take the lid off. Don't keep me in a coffer. Offer care, offer prayer, offer compassion to help others in pain for a greater gain. Amen. Amen. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But here's, let's look at what happens next in the story. Right now, the vessels are full, but they're full of what? Water. How often do you go, I think I just, I think I just have water. I, I'm full, but I think, I mean, it kind of looks like water. 
But the key to it is what she's talking about, because here's what happens next. He says, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Back to draw some out and serve it. The glory of God is not to be contained within the church, within us. This treasure does not stay within the coffer. Do you know one of the reasons maybe that we don't see what we're wanting to see is because we're not drawing the water out. I believe that that is one of the conditions for his glory to be seen. Do you know, I believe, and I feel uh, like Pastor Bob preached on this once, that the servant probably all the way to the head waiter is going, still water, still water, still water. (laughs) I really believe it was still water until he drank it, until it was served. I mean, really, I'm sure he was bracing. But there is a a condition for his glory is a dipping out of what God has filled us with and a belief that it's going to become wine to the one who needs it. Amen? So it's not for us. Most of the prayer as it related to these these moves of God over history, was for the sake of the world, was for the sake of seeing people's lives restored and come to Christ and for souls. And it wasn't about, oh, help us in our need. One of the conditions for his glory is the reality that it's meant to be served. It's meant to be distributed. And then the final piece that I'm going to take from this is that the head waiter said, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. We have to believe the truth of the word that says the best is yet to come. Always, wherever we're at in history, The best is yet to come. And there is, I talked to you about where I was sitting going, I think the best has already been. Now we just have to hang on until Jesus comes. Nope. The best is yet to come. His glory comes in a way, we look back and we we look at these moves of God. We look at the moves of God even in in the Bible and we go, wow, yeah, we're never going to see those days. No, we're going to see something better. We're going to see something that is necessary and needed for this time and this place. The best is yet to come. For those of you who feel, and the Lord's been dealing with this, I've said it more than once, like, yeah, I think think it's past for me. No. The glory of the Lord can work when we recognize that we go from glory to glory. Worship team, if you want to come and get ready, that'd be great.
in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's familiar because we've been camping here. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. How do we go from glory to glory? One of the things that the Lord is inviting us into, and one of the things that we see preceding the manifestation of God's glory in a major way throughout Scripture and in history, is this face-to-face pursuit with God. Glory comes through the face-to-face pursuit You could look back and say, no, it came because there was prayer. Two a one, every single one of those revivals, those places of his glory being poured out, there was prayer sewn into that. But do you know that prayer is being face-to-face with God? It's not a like, we have to rack up enough miles. Like, and then we get the, you know, if we just put in enough time, That's not why the glory comes. The glory comes because it's this face-to-face encounter that people are having with God. You know, in John 1, it talks about, in the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with means face-to-face. And it's the same root for the word Prayer. The word prayer has to do with not just making our requests known and asking him to come and do something, or it has to do with this face-to-face encounter where an exchange takes place, where we begin to exchange our desires with one another. And he's inviting us into this face-to-face encounter as we look to prepare ourselves to be a dwelling place for his glory. Do you know you already are? He tells us when the Holy Spirit came already, we are the dwelling place. But we, we get to step into that in a new way in this season. Not in a religious prayer pursuit. I'm done with religious prayer. <laughs> I want to be face to face. I want to be face to face with him so I can hear his plan and know his heart. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To learn more about us, please visit livingwatersmn.org.